This is a UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For details about the centre, please visit our website at www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. To listen to other episodes from our archive, please visit the centre's iTunes page or our media website chomi.org. In this episode, recorded on the 12th of April 2018, Dr. Fanula Walsh of University College Dublin reads her paper entitled You Will Feel That You Are Being of Some Use Irish Nurses and the Great War, 1914 to 1918. The chair of this paper was Catherine Cox, Associate Professor at the School of History at University College Dublin. You Will Feel That You Are Being of Some Use Irish Nurses and the Great War, 1914 to 1918. Within the historiography of the First World War, increasing attention has been given in recent years to gender perspectives and to considering women's contribution to the war effort. Recent scholarship has attempted to move away from the question of female emancipation to bring the focus back to women's lived experience of the war. Despite the volume of material published on wartime nursing over the past 100 years, much remains to be explored. This is even more the case for Ireland than for other combatant countries. Of the, new, the new research in Ireland's First World War grows on a daily basis. In this paper, I'm going to discuss the wartime experience of Irish nurses from 1914 to 1918, both in Ireland and on, and on overseas service. It is drawn from a wider monograph I'm currently completing on Irish women in the First World War, based on my PhD thesis. As such, my approach is sought for a war historian rather than that of an expert in nursing history. I'm sure there are many more here who know more about Irish nursing history and I look forward to receiving your feedback. The extent of Ireland's mobilisation for the war effort may be known to all. Approximately 210,000 Irish men enlisted from Ireland to serve in the British Armed Forces. War on the scale of the First World War demanded the voluntary mobilisation of women. Women performed essential activities to support the war effort and to maintain morale on the home front in Ireland or elsewhere. They knitted socks for soldiers, prepared parcels of comforts, organised war charities, carried for families of enlisted men and collected sphagnum moss from bogland and prepared it for use in surgical dressings. Medical mobilisation was an essential aspect of this alternative war service. David Dernan's work has revealed that 3,000 Irish doctors served with the British forces during the First World War. They worked with thousands of Irish nurses, both in military hospitals and the home front, and in casualty clearing stations and hospitals close to the front line. Nursing for women was seen by many as the closest war service to that of fighting. The British historian Janet K. Watson suggests that nursing acted as a metaphorical battlefront for women seeking voluntary war work. Irish wartime nursing took two distinct forms, that by trained professionals and that by amateur volunteers in voluntary aid detachments under the remit of the Red Cross. In September 1914, the Irish District of the St John Ambulance Association and the Dublin section of the British Red Cross Society agreed to cooperate for the duration of the war, forming a joint headquarters in Dublin. Two committees were established, one for Leinster, Munster and Connacht, and another which dealt exclusively with Ulster, where the VADs took instruction from the Belfast branch of the British Red Cross Society. Varying figures have been provided for VAD membership in Ireland and Great Britain. For British Red Cross records indicate that 5,688 women served as a joint committee across the four provinces of Ireland. My preliminary investigations 
suggests that the proportion of women involved in the British Red Cross and St John Ambulance Association was similar in Ireland to that for Great Britain. Close to 600 Irish women served at the British Red Cross and St John Ambulance in hospitals outside the United Kingdom and a further 3,000 in hospitals in Ireland and, the, and Great Britain. These numbers are very approximate and underestimated, however, as not all detachments recorded the war service with their members, although it is not differentiate between home and overseas service. Many of the women at home volunteered at the 27 auxiliary hospitals established in Ireland during the war. By July 1917, Irish auxiliary hospitals provided 1,680 beds for sick and wounded soldiers. Each of these hospitals depended upon local support and often came under the patronage of the local gentry. For example, a Red Cross hospital opened in Dublin Castle, the seat of the British administration in Ireland, in January 1915, with prominent support from Lady Aberdeen, the wife of the Lord Lieutenant to Ireland. These volunteer nurses worked alongside professional nurses serving in military organisations. The Queen Alexandra Imperial Military Nursing Service, established in 1902, and the Queen Alexandra Military Nursing Service Reserve, established in 1908. These recruited Irish professional nurses during the Great War. All the reservists had no military duties in peacetime, beyond reporting annually to the War Office. They are paid an annual retainer of £2. They are also liable for immediate call-up in the event of war. 34 Queen Alexandra nurses from Dublin left for an unknown destination on the troop ship SS City of Benares on 17th of August 1914. Another 12 Irish professional nurses had been mobilised for the front the previous week to serve with the Belgian army. Many Irish nurses applied to the Queen Alexandra Reserve as soon as war was declared in August 1914. Six nurses from the Mater Hospital applied together to the reserve in August 1914, shortly after war was declared, but just four were accepted. Thirteen nurses from the Royal City of Dublin Hospital, Bagot Street, joined the reserve between August and December 1914, and by the end of the war, the Royal City Dublin Hospital and the Mead Hospital had each contributed 26 nurses in total to the war service. The successful applicants came from middle-class families all over Ireland. The enlistment of nurses in the military services left gaps in personnel in Ireland. A number of supervisory staff had enlisted, including the matron of Cork Street Fever Hospital and the Irish superintendent of the Queen Victoria's Jubilees Institute for Nurses. In 1915, Ireland was described as straining every nerve to supply trained nurses for war service, resulting in shortages at home. There was hardly a nurse to be got here for private cases, for love or money, all volunteering. The majority of Irish military nurses served in France with the British Expeditionary Force, but some also served in Macedonia, East Africa, Malta, Italy, Mesopotamia and Egypt. They worked in a variety of different types of locations, base hospitals, stationary hospitals, casualty clearing stations and on hospital trains. A number of Irish nurses were awarded the Royal Red Cross for their war service. These included Maud Blakely and Mary Doherty. Maud Blakely was born in County Tyrone in 1874. She trained as a nurse in London and served as a military nurse during the Boer War before joining the Queen Alexandra service as a staff nurse in 1903. She worked as a matron of a military hospital in Cork before, before the war in 1914. In 1916, she was appointed as assistant principal matron in France. Mentioned in dispatches twice, she was awarded the Royal Red Cross in January 1916. In 1927, she received an OBE for her war work. Her sister Jane Blakely also served with the Queen Alexandra service during the Great War, while her two brothers served for the Royal Army Medical Corps. 
Mary Doherty trained at, Saint, at Dr. Stevens Hospital in Dublin and volunteered for army work at the beginning of the war. She worked in a hospital in France and was mentioned in dispatches and awarded the Royal Red Cross for her devotion to duty. In 1916, she was transferred to Salonika, where she died from malaria and dysentery aged 28. Disease was a constant risk for those serving overseas. Many nurses also faced danger from shell fire close to the front and from torpedoes while travelling overseas. 112 Queen Alexandra members and 48 Territorial Force Nursing Sisters are recorded as having died in active service between August 1914 and April 1920. Of these, at least 18 were Irish. The Irish members all died of disease. They're commemorated in the St Anne's Church of Ireland Cathedral in Belfast. 142 members of voluntary aid detachments also died in active service over the same period, at least 15 of whom were Irish. A number of voluntary nurses from Ireland drowned in the sinking of the Leinster mail boat in the Irish Sea in October 1918. One of them, Violet Barrett, is commemorated on the Tullow Church War Memorial in Fox Rock. She was returning to active service in France when the ship was torpedoed. Others died of illness, and many died of influenza during the flu pandemic in 1918. For example, Venice Hackett contracted flu in France and died in London in October 1918 en route home to Offaly. She joined the Red Cross in August 1916 aged 30, and was sent to France after first serving with a Tipperary detachment. Her family's story is indicative of the devastating losses experienced by some Irish families during the war. They lost two sons and a daughter in active service, and another son to illness in 1915. With no heirs remaining, the family home was sold for pittance to Offaly County Council in 1938. Those who remained on the home front were not immune to danger, however, with quite a number of voluntary nurses becoming involved with helping the wounded during Easter Rising. Isabel Meredith was another young woman from the Dublin Catholic middle class who trained as a volunteer nurse on the outbreak of war. She served with the Fitzwilliam Nursing Division of the St John Ambulance Association. When the Rising began, she was transferred to a temporary hospital established in Marion Square. During Easter week 1916, St John's Ambulance Association offered first aid to military, civilians and rebels alike, risking their own lives to do so. Isabel was presented with an award by the St John Ambulance Association for a service in the cause of humanity in Easter week. Who volunteered for war service or charitable war work in Ireland? To what extent were the volunteers representative of the wider Irish population? The Red Cross personnel records provide the most useful insight into the profile of the Irish female volunteer for the war effort. This sample is derived from an examination of every tenth record of a female volunteer where Ireland is listed as the location of enlistment. This yielded a sample of 209 women, 10% of all the records in the, in the um, British Red Cross digitised records online. The records include home addresses as well as details of service, making it possible to locate the women through the 1901 and 1911 censuses for Ireland. They provide insight into the age, marital status and socio-economic backgrounds of the volunteers and the types of work they performed. Although the sample suggests, unsurprisingly, that a typical Irish Red Cross volunteer was single in her early 30s and from a middle-class Protestant background, it does demonstrate the diversity of women involved with the organisation and the wide variety of work performed by them. Of those who completed education when recorded in the 1911 census, 25% were recorded as in paid occupations. These are largely in traditional female occupations, such as dressmakers, domestic servants, nurses and teachers. 13 of the women were trained nurses who were paid by the Red Cross for training and supervising the VADs. The presence in the sample of women in paid employment and from low quality housing 
suggests a wider class base than frequently assumed. Although most, almost two thirds of the women in the sample were living in first class housing in 1911, um, a further 31% were living in second class housing and just four in third class housing. Just over half of the women were living in households with, with at least one servant. War service was not restricted to the privileged few, but rather included a broad section of the population, indica indicating the significant levels of support for the war effort in Ireland. Social class, age and marital status, however, dictated the type of role performed by women. Only those who did not have to earn their living and had few domestic responsibilities could commit to a full-time nursing role and particularly to overseas service. What prompted Irish women to volunteer for military nursing during the Great War? As with the Irish men who involuntarily enlisted in the British Army, there is a diverse array of motivations behind women's war service, ranging from the patriotic to the political to the economic. For many women, their participation was motivated by a combination of these factors. Margaret Iams argues that Irish voluntary aid cannot be categorised simply as Christian piety or imperial zeal, but instead represents the universal aim of voluntary war workers across the world to alleviate the suffering caused by the war, from which they cannot escape. It is certainly true that for many those involved, the initial motivation was to assist with the fallout from the crisis engulfing Europe. This urge was evident across party political lines, including among advanced nationalists who were opposed to Irish participation in the Great War. For many, their support for the war effort was an aid of specific soldiers rather than an imperial or even national cause. In her work on French volunteer nursing, Margaret Darrow has described the different attitudes towards war service among soldiers and nurses. Men's military service represented a nationalist commitment to aid France, while women's voluntary nursing was more personal and less abstract. Women's commitment to the national cause was expressed through their nursing work and their care for the soldiers. It should be mentioned that support for the war effort was more common in Ireland in 1914 than 19 and 1915 than opposition. Organisations opposed to the war, such as Common Amman and the anti-war suffrage societies, struggled to maintain membership and relevance. Activities to support the war effort sprung up everywhere and involved diverse sectors of society. Many of those who were sub subsequently active in the Republican movement were initially involved in war work. For example, the Republican Maura Comerford recalled that she participated in a variety of voluntary work to support the British war effort in Enniscorty. In her memoir, she recalled that her nationalist sympathies were slow to emerge. Muriel McSweeney, wife of the Republican activist Ter Terence McSweeney, nursed wounded soldiers in Cork, but later claimed that she gave it up upon realising that the course of action put me down as pro-British. The majority of suffragists were willing to support the war effort, even the militant ones who had been previously engaged in a violent campaign against the government. The Cadiz sisters provide a good example of this. Leila and Rosalind Cadiz were born in India to Irish parents, but grew up in County Roscommon. They joined the Irish Women's Franchise League in 1910, and became members of the Women's Social and Political Union later that year. They were imprisoned twice in 1912, in London and Dublin, for participation in violent protests against the government. They were expelled from the Irish Women's Franchise League in September 1912, for organising a hunger strike in sympathy with imprisoned Women's Social and Political Union members. In July 1913, the Cadiz sisters sued the Irish Women's Franchise League for wrongful expulsion, but they lost their case in a subsequent appeal on the grounds of the concerned one party bringing an action against the other, arising out of a cr criminal conspiracy in which all were engaged. The strong suffrage beliefs of the sisters were evident, evident in a letter they wrote to the Irish Times on 22nd of August 1914, following the outbreak of the war. 
describing themselves as militant suffragettes, the sisters argued that women should be given the vote without delay in order to best serve the war effort. And they protested that if women were considered capable of serving as nurses, they surely were equally efficient to register our votes. The sisters were, however, willing to support the war effort without being granted suffrage. Rosalind nursed soldiers at the Adelaide Hospital in Dublin, and Leila joined the City of Dublin VAD, the British Red Cross, in May 1915. She served as a nurse in military hospitals in Manchester and Dublin, before being sent to France with the Queen Alexandra Nursing Service in February 1918. The three brothers served the British forces during the war, which undoubtedly affected Leila and Rosalind's decision to participate in the war effort. Their close ties to the pro-war Women's Social and Political Union and their antagonistic relationship with the anti-war Irish Women's Franchise League likewise may have influenced their attitude to the war effort. A significant number of the women who served as nurses had a family member serving in the armed forces. Marie Martin, a young Dublin Catholic, volunteered for Red Cross nursing in September 1914. Two of her brothers joined the army and one was killed in December 1915 when Marie was served in France. Emma Duffin, a young middle-class Belfast woman, also served with the Red Cross during the war. Her brother Terence was a British Army officer, and her four sisters all volunteered as nurses. She outlined her motives for enlisting to serve as a St John Ambulance Association nurse in a letter to her mother in May 1915. I'm glad, for I think it is the right thing to do. You'll feel that you're being of some use, and it makes me independent till the end of the war anyway. I dare say I'll get to like the work. Everyone seems to. It will certainly be interesting. Her reasons for enlisting clearly combined both a sense of patriotic duty with a desire for independence and personal fulfilment. The sense of it being the right thing to do was common for many women feeling almost compelled to do something related to the war. Isabella Cleland from County Antrim inserted a note with her completed British Red Cross service record, outlining how she see how she had seen a call in a local newspaper for volunteers to help with the sphagnum moss dressings. She described how she was well pleased with the privilege of doing a little bit. Cleland made an estimated three dozen bandages each week for 18 months. Personal fulfilment, the influence of one's peers and the social benefits derived from nursing were also important factors, particularly in sustaining war relief work beyond the first few months of the war. Patriotic fervor and the excitement generated by the outbreak of the war may prompted women to begin activities to support the war effort in autumn 1914, but other factors were essential to sustain this enthusiasm and commitment. In her work on British nurses, Henrietta Donner has described the fulfilment many women gained from war nursing. She noted a sense of pride in her handling of their duty, the companionship of working with others, and a feeling that their lives had meaning and purpose. This is evident in the case of Marie Martin. Her letters from France and Malta to her mother reveal a sense of self-worth she gained from receiving praise from the matron and the clear enjoyment she found in being able to dispense medical advice to her relatives. Emma Duffin referred to the independence she regained from nursing service, for some voluntary work for the war effort came as a welcome distraction from their restricted lives. It has been suggested that British voluntary nurses found themselves suddenly released from the passive chaperoned Edwardian existence that was characteristic of provincial female life. Arthur Marek has suggested that middle and upper class women gained economic and social independence from their voluntary war work, particularly that which took them away from home. He argues that their awareness of the contribution to an essential war effort brought a new self-consciousness and a new sense of status. Marek's conclusions have been critiqued by scholars such as Alison Fell, who highlight the limited and temporary nature of wartime progress in women's emancipation 
and the pre-war roles performed by many women in the public sphere. Fell argues that while wartime nursing provided some upper-class women with their first venture outside the domestic sphere, the popular and historiographic focus on these women distorts the overall picture of First World War volunteers. Nevertheless, enjoyment and fulfilment many women found in the war service is evident. Both economic and patriotic factors likely motivated the professional nurses to enlist for a military service. The annual £2 retainer paid to the Queen Alexandra Military Nursing Service Reserve may have motivated Irish nurses to sign up as reservists before the war, little expecting that the service would be required. Professional nurses could also earn significantly more through army nursing. The wages of a ward sister or a matron in the army were almost double that of civilian nurses at home. Humanitarian impulses, personal ambition and patriotism also played an important role in the enlistment of qualified nurses. In her study of Welsh wartime nursing, Sarah Brady argues that the Great War offered nurses unique opportunities to fulfil private ambitions alongside their duties in public service. She argues that the war offered an escape route to nurses who wished to move from their usual working environment, allowing them to move to another institution, into a more specialised field, or to serve overseas. A combination of patriotism and a desire to be part of the excitement of war motivated two Irish nurses who joined the Queen Alexandra Imperial Military Nursing Service from the civilian hospitals in England. Captain Black from County Donegal was serving in the London Hospital at the outbreak of war. She signed up with the Queen Alexandra Nursing Service but recalled in her memoir that she did not really expect to be called up as she believed the war would be over by Christmas. After spending the first year of the war in a military hospital in Cambridge, Catherine was sent to France in autumn 1916. She worked in various casualty clearing stations in France until the war ended. Emily McManus, a nurse in Guy's Hospital in London, explained in her memoir how she felt compelled to enlist as an army nurse after the outbreak of war. I felt I could remain at Guy's no longer. Emily was born in England in 1886 to Irish parents. The family spent many holidays in County Mayo with relatives and Emily identified as Irish. Her father was a medical doctor and Emily began nursing training at Guy's Hospital in London in 1908. Two of her brothers served in the war, Desmond with the Royal Army Medical Corps and Dermot with the Royal Enniskillen Fusiliers. Dermot, interestingly, ended up joining the IRA after the war and was imprisoned in Dublin Castle during the War of Independence by the British government. Emily McManus joined the Queen Alexandra Reserve in July 1915 and she was immediately sent to France. In her memoir, she described some of the harrowing scenes she witnessed as part of her work. At the time of the March 1918 offensive, she was working in a casualty clearing station in Noyon at the end of the English line. The nurses were placed under huge pressure to cope with the vast numbers of injured soldiers. She was, however, reluctant to be evacuated from the front line and felt guilty about the wounded soldiers and the civilians they were leaving behind in danger. I've never felt more sad or ashamed. Dedication to her work and a desire to in some way alleviate the suffering caused by the war is very evident in McManus's memoir. This is also evident in the case of the amateur nurses serving with the, with the voluntary aid detachments during the war through the Joint Committee of the British Red Cross Society and St John Ambulance Association. Nonetheless, there are significant tensions between the amateur and professional nurses. For many women, one of the most significant benefits of war relief work was the solidarity and the companionship of working with others for a common purpose. However, the wartime rhetoric of sacrifice and nationhood emphasised sectional divisions. Social class was also a persistent issue for women war workers. 
Although ward service is frequently imagined as having encouraged greater interaction between the classes, increased interaction did not necessarily lead to improved relations. The morality of working class women was questioned, and upper class women faced criticism for their supposed frivolity and accusations of using war service as a new social competition. Celia Duffin, a Belfast voluntary nurse, maintained her class consciousness while serving in hospitals in England. In a letter to her sister Emma, Celia commented on the class of her fellow voluntary nurses and seemed quite nervous of interaction with them. They are more or less the Irish contingent, I think, and, quite, and are quite decent looking, but unattractive. Some of the Red Cross girls look much nicer. I dare say I shall be able to chum up with them later. A lot of the Red Cross girls are ladies, but I don't think many of the St. John are. A few weeks later, she repeated the same sentiment to her mother. Some of the girls are quite ladies, but the greater number are not. Significant tensions were particularly apparent between the amateur and professional nurses, likely due to class differences and the different perspectives each group had of their, had of their work. Janet K. Watson has observed her professional nurses viewed wartime nursing as an opportunity to demonstrate their essential and unique skills, while the volunteers perceived it as a parallel war service akin to that performed by their soldier relatives and friends. The conflict between the two types of nurses was evident in the British Journal of Nursing, which frequently featured criticism of the VAD nurses. The journal criticised the volunteers for their inflated ideas of their own importance, their own reliability and snobbery. In December 1914, the National Council of Trained Nurses, representing 6,000 nurses, called on Lord Kitchener to end the scandal of amateur nurses when given seniority over trained nurses. Emily McManus recalled in her memoir the initial consternation and annoyance among the Queen Alexandra Military Nursing Service nurses on the arrival of the VADs in their army camp in France and her assumption that the untrained girls would be useless, frivolous, frightened. Despite this foreboding, she reported that the VAD girls were the greatest success and that army nurses could not manage without the extra volunteer help. She described the voluntary nurses she encountered as careful and keen, determined to learn all they could and to be helpful. Concern about the voluntary nurses was also evident on the home front in Ireland. In November 1914, Margaret Cunningham, warden of Trinity College, Dublin, expressed reservations about the sudden popularity of voluntary nursing. She argued that women were neglecting other obvious duties to have the glamour looking after the soldiers and suggested that they would be better cared, better served caring for the sick poor. The Irish citizen adopted the issue, arguing that the involvement of Irish women with the Red Cross was taking away employment from trained nurses who depended upon such work for their livelihood and lowering the standard and prestige of the nursing profession. The newspaper claimed that the hospitals in Dublin were being flooded by voluntary nurses and suggested that the class and influence of the ladies meant that most hospitals had condoned an incursion of her hordes of untrained into their ranks. The discussion of the topic in the Irish Citizen included several letters from trained nurses who claimed that there was a shortage of work for nurses in Dublin due to the deluge of amateurs into the profession. This then prompted some defensive responses from voluntary nurses. A Miss Mary Baker, for example, wrote that I'm attending a Red Cross class in Belfast and yet have no thought I'm helping to set up not the life worker for Lawrence Nightingale. To be left off as well-meaning and devoted if thoughtless is not good enough nowadays. Such protests resembled the objections to the use of volunteers in munitions factories 
or the potential displacement of textile workers by Red Cross work parties, but in this case it was a skilled profession that was threatened by the influx of volunteers. It is, however, possible that the conflict between the two types of nurses was exaggerated in the nursing journals as a means of assessing their own worth. The announcement of the armistice on 11th November 1918 brought ambivalent feelings for Irish nurses. A sense of deflation and uncertainty was a common response among those active in the war effort. Captain Black recalled how the armistice left her dazed and bewildered, the inevitable reaction after those years of strain. Such women were aware that war service had brought friendship and solidarity, as well as adventure and independence. Many, many voluntary nurses knew that they would miss the solidarity of war work and they feared the loss of their independence. Many of those who had served over, overseas found it difficult to adjust to civilian life. Emily McManus found the initial few months of working in a civilian hospital intolerable after experience with the war effort in France. She missed the comradeship and the goodwill of camp life in France, and she chafed against the restrictions placed on her freedom of movement. Returning to the female hospital environment, having lived for three and a half years in what she describes as a world of men, was particularly difficult. However, she was able to use her war experience to gain a promotion to the position of matron at the Bristol Royal Infirmary, and in 1927 she became matron of Guy's Hospital in London. Those who returned to Ireland after years overseas found a very altered society from 1914. They returned to a politically turbulent country, beset by violence, which doubtless exasperated the condition of those already suffering from war-induced trauma. Men and women that were openly associated with the British war effort found themselves out of favour. Irish women over the age of 30 had gained the vote in 1918, and opportunities for women's political activism were stronger than ever before. Yet many returning nurses faced difficult times. Their families and social circles had frequently sustained losses in the war, and many returned to families beset by financial hardship after years of inflation. Unemployment soared, and job opportunities for women were particularly limited. Insight into the post-war experience of Irish nurses can be gained from the applications for training grants to the Central Committee for Women's Training and Employment for the South of Ireland. This was a British, this was a British government scheme introduced in January 1920. It enabled training of women for new employment who suffered financial hardship or lost employment opportunity due to the war. Applicants for the scheme were required to be unskilled, unemployed on time of application, but normally in employment. The difficulty experienced by some trained nurses in finding employment following their return from war service is evident in, the, in, in these three examples, which I will discuss now. A. Purcell, age 47, from Waterford, a nurse wounded soldiers in Malta, but she was employed for, unemployed for a number of months following her demobilisation. She applied to train as a health visitor in 1920, but her application for funds to support this was denied. Rose Garvin, age 36, from Dublin, served with the St. John Ambulance Association from 1915 to 1919 as a fully trained nurse. Following her discharge, she worked as a private nurse in England, but she desired to receive midwifery training in order to improve her employment prospects. Mary McGlynn, also from Dublin, diverged her from her, from her midwifery training to serve with the Territorial Nursing Service. She also found it difficult to find a post after the war without midwifery qualifications. This interest in midwifery training can be partly explained by the passing of the Midwives Ireland Bill in 1918, which stipulated formal qualifications for those acting as handy women or midwives. The scheme was closed in March 1922, 
In its first year, the committee received 701 applications. It provided grants for 293 girls and women involved a total of over £25,000. Examination of the records gives some insight into the lasting economic effects of the war and the attitudes towards female workers after the armistice. Applicants had to prove their financial dependence and their need to work, indicating a continued assumption of work as a choice for women. They tended to seek training in traditional female sectors, such as nursing and domestic work, and had a higher success rate with these choices. For many women, the, nurse, the war left a lasting impact upon their lives. Catherine Black, who served the front in 1916 to 1918, described the lingering effects of such traumatic work. You cannot go through the things we went through, see the things we saw, and remain the same. You went into it young and light-hearted. You can make it older than any span of years could make you. Emma Duffin, in contrast, recalled the positive aspects to her wartime nursing service in her 1967 memoir. It's been a hard life, but a great experience, never to be regretted. We had seen great suffering, but greater courage. We learned to take responsibility and to act on our own when required. We learned the value of comradeship and the class could be ignored. An orderly could be a friend as well as an officer. A patient could be a brother. To me, some of those men are more dear to me than those I met perhaps a year or so ago. I can never forget them, and many I know will remember me. I'm indeed your sister in both senses. Catherine Black and Emma Duffin were both reflecting on their war service many years later. Catherine was writing in 1939, on the eve of another world war, while Emma was recalling her youth at the end of her life, whose context undoubtedly affected their re reflections on the lasting impact of the war in their lives. Nevertheless, it is noteworthy that both women felt that their lives had been irrevocably changed by the wartime experience. Both these women had interesting post-war lives. Catherine Black ended up becoming private nurse to King George V in 1928, and she remained part of the royal household until his death in 1936. Emma Duffin remained active in voluntary work after the war, becoming involved with the Belfast Council for Social Welfare, and serving as a commandant of a local military hospital during the Second World War. They were typical of the many former war, war, war workers who attempted to find similarly fulfilling activities afterwards. Marie Martin's war service, combined with the loss of her brother, made her determined to devote her life to caring for the sick and the wounded. She became a nun after the war's end, and eventually founded the Medical Missionaries of Mary. Others returned to the domestic sphere. Isabel Meredith, the voluntary nurse on the home front, married the Dublin doctor in 1917, who had also been commended for bravery during the Easter Rising, and who had served in France with the Royal Army Medical Corps. Her and Anthony, joined the British Navy and served overseas in World War II, but thankfully survived to become my grandfather. Nursing was the subject of great praise and attention during the war, with women portrayed as selfless, devoted figures. However, the influx of volunteers with very limited training into the hospitals caused significant concern about the long-term impact on their profession. There was a lengthy campaign among nurses in the United Kingdom before the war for a register to recognise the training of qualified nurses. This campaign accelerated in wartime. The Irish Matrons Association passed a resolution in January 1918 stating that VADs needed to take three years training in the war as a recognised training school to be entitled to call themselves trained nurses. The Nursing Registration Act became legislation in December 1919, creating a boundary of expertise around the profession. The Act defined the body of knowledge as essential to the qualified nurse and identified the nurses who had been trained in that knowledge. General Nursing Council was established to oversee the regulation process and to regulate nursing in the same way that the General Medi Medical Council regulated doctors. 
The professional union of trained nurses was established in 1919, at the same time as the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation was founded in Ireland. It was initially a branch of the Irish Women's Workers' Union. It aimed to seek improvements in pay and the setting of professional standards for the performance of nurses' duties. The new organisation was known as the Irish Nurses' Union. It made significant progress in the first years regarding pay and pension entitlements and the setting of standards through education and policy documents. Despite the Registration Act and the increased unionisation of nursing, historians, however, have questioned whether war women's wartime activities really resulted in long-term changes to their position in society. Anne Summers, in her work on British military nursing, argues that women were not powerful, nor had they radical leadership during the war. She concludes that the war has shown how easily the state could override the nurses' criteria of professionalism by diluting hospital staff with barely trained VADs. Nevertheless, the First World War provided an opportunity for thousands of Irish women to serve as nurses in a parallel war service to that of Irish men enlisted as soldiers. These Irish women, coming from the diverse backgrounds, nursed soldiers in hospitals in Ireland, Britain, France, Malta, Greece, Turkey and further afield. Hundreds of both professional and amateur nurses volunteered for overseas service and worked in conditions of severe danger and risk from bombardment and disease. Over 30 Irish nurses died in active service during the war. They enlisted for a variety of motivations, including professional ambition, economic motives, the presence of a family member in the army, some desiring independence and excitement, others just wanting to do their best to help the war effort and to relieve their suffering caused by the war. They were thrown into circumstances very different to anything they'd encountered before, and they're permanently affected by their experience. However, on their return to Ireland and their demobilisation, Many faced difficult times due to wartime bereavements and reduced employment opportunities for women. They received little support in their politically turbulent country, and many of their stories remained until recent years, while the late historian Keith Jeffrey described in 2000 as a historically hidden Ireland. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.